to thinking in terms of human-centric design, thinking of design thinking principles. And the design had to provide outdoor space. It had to provide for community. So even on the 3D printing one, it was a pod of four with this center garden that people could commune with each other. Because one of the biggest things that I feel is missing for folks is that safety net of community when something happens in their lives. That net is not there. I'm Nina Friedman, and this is Wearing. Wearing explores where we are. It is dedicated to those who believe in the inherent right of belonging and all the ways we feel we belong and connect to ourselves, to each other, and the spaces that hold the stories where all of this comes alive where each experience of belonging is a work of art, created by chance or by design. Dare I ask, is belonging where you are, not what matters most? Wearing is the spatial story. Welcome. We speak with Kishani De Silva, who has most recently been an executive advisor with the Los Angeles County Development Authority focused on solutions to challenges of homelessness and shortfall in affordable housing. She has worked in the architecture and design industries for over 20 years, both in the United States and in the UK, maintains her own practice 2A plus D, and is a faculty member of the Woodbury University. Her work includes explorations into housing innovation, sustainability, and the business of design. She is a former president of 5050 times 2020, an initiative for the Association of Women in Architecture and Design in Los Angeles. Kishani, most of us have personal or ancestral migration stories. You were born in Sri Lanka, is that right? Correct. To begin, I'm wondering how that origin home or its influences contributed to what you think of as home or belonging to a place. Can you speak to this personal migration story and a little bit of where you have lived and thought of as home and how you think of it now? Sure. So you're right. I was born in Colombo, which is the capital of Sri Lanka, and spent my formative years there. As a teenager, however, I came on an exchange program to the U.S. and spent a year with an American family in Illinois. It was an amazing experience, and I think it just really gave me this whole window into what's out there in terms of other cultures. And I went back and went on with my life in Sri Lanka, but Sri Lanka was in a civil war. And it was a, a dire time. It, was a th- it ended up being like a 30-year civil war. There were lots of acts of violence. I come from a mixed background in Sri Lanka. So the majority and the minority, my dad's on the majority side, my mom's on the minority side. And my mom's family went through a lot. Of, and I, I won't get into a lot of detail, but my grandmother's house burnt down to the ground in, in civil riots and so on and so forth. As a ramification of that, a lot of universities had to shut down for, for a long period of time. 
so I decided to come back to the US actually to education. So that brought me here. One thing led to another, started architecture school at Woodbury. And I was always thinking I would go back, but I got my first job straight out of my thesis project. That took me to a whole new career path. I would say that the US is my home. It's where I've lived most of my life now. I had done a few spells back and forth to the UK for work, for school, etc., for life. And I fit very well within the UK. I don't stand out as much as I do in the US. I just blend in very nicely because there's tons of people who look like me. And I love the UK, but I guess the US, especially LA, has become my home. I realize even going back and forth from the US to the UK to Sri Lanka, how adaptable I am. And sometimes on one of these trips, I cross all three continents in one trip. And there I am in, in Colombo and hailing a tuk-tuk, which is sort of this three-wheeler type thing. And then I'm back in London a week later and hopping on the tube. And then I arrive back in LA and driving my car around. So I realized how adaptable I can be in terms of place and in terms of home. But if you ask me where my home is, and that's pretty much LA. It's quite courageous of you as a teenager to have come to Illinois on your own. And you seem to have had a wanderlust from way back. I, I just am shocked that my parents sent me. I mean, I come from a sheltered home, a background, my parents gave us a lot of freedom, but we always had to be chaperoned to other people's homes or parties or whatever. Strict curfews, that sort of stuff. I'm just like shocked that my parents let me do this. But this is a very long time ago and things are different. Things were different then, yes. And I also know what you mean about being in many countries and being adaptable because I've lived for a long time in the UK as well. And that really was my home for quite a while. Although, interestingly, I, I haven't traveled back as much over the years. Mm -hmm. And when I went back last year, things have changed so much. I didn't know my way anymore. So it changes this feeling of familiarity. Yeah, definitely. You've had a varied career path. You were educated as an architect. You've taken additional training in strategic thinking, business, leadership. And this is actually quite unusual for an architect. I want to ask you why you went into it, because it's actually quite a flaw in architectural training, this lack of entrepreneurship training, strategic thinking, etc. How did you become originally interested in this integration? Did you see it as a fracture inside of the discipline of architecture? Not initially, to be quite frank. My career kind of evolved very organically. But if I was to look back, you're spot on when you say that there's a huge gap in all of the above. I veered off into this management role early on in my career. I realized sort of left brain, right brain stuff. I mean, I, I love to write. I am good with the business side of design. I love theory of architecture. I love the conceptual aspects of design. So it was always this balancing those two things. Through your consulting company, you 
made this choice, embed yourself as a consultant into the LA County Development Authority as a FUSE fellow. And this was a very interesting transition and change, but strategic intentional focus. So I'd like you to begin by telling us what FUSE is and then its particular application into the area in which you consulted. Right. If I could go back a little bit before I answer your question on FUSE to lay the foundation of how it got me there. Before FUSE, I was actually back in the UK. I happened to just look at this website of fostering partners. It was a project manager position. I went for the interview and I was hired on the spot and came back and then wrapped up things and went back for a couple of years. I had to come back to the US because my residency was in jeopardy. The US doesn't allow permanent residents to stay out of the country for very long. I had to make a choice and I decided that this was more important for me because my family are US citizens, my parents, my sisters. So I felt like this was home and I couldn't jeopardize that. So I came back. And that's when I started my consultancy. I was teaching at Woodbury as adjunct faculty. It was at Woodbury and I was preparing for a lecture when I came across this course and I decided to do it. It was a two-year program at the University of Oxford for working professionals. It was all research and writing and reading. It was about major programs. During the course, I realized and through my teaching at Woodbury how much I had changed in terms of how I thought about architecture and where I wanted to be in the profession. You're spot on again when you say I was intentional. I really wanted to work in the housing and homelessness spectrum. And my research assignments, I based it on homelessness and housing as a major program. So major programs are large scale. You spend billions of dollars on it. They're long-term, complex, works in a lot of uncertainty, a ton of stakeholders and impacts millions of lives. And for me, homelessness and the housing crisis is a major program. So having finished that, I really felt like my place was to impact government. And I looked for a way and an avenue to plug into government to work on this specific issue. And through the association with Main Architect Design, I had met this wonderful woman who works for the city of Los Angeles. She's the one who introduced me to FUSE. And there was this one particular fellowship to look at housing and homelessness. So I applied for just that one. FUSE is where they connect private sector folks and plug them into government to help government with some of their most impactful projects that they are grappling with. So it could be something like housing and homelessness or the environment, criminal justice reform systems, etc. So the FUSE Co as FUSE Fellows within those areas and then they get plugged in. It's quite wonderful. Really it is. It's an amazing way for private sector folks to springboard into government to help them with some of the the issues that they're really grappling with. Tell us about the project that you spearheaded when you were embedded there. So the work there was to create this strategic partnership division 
to help housing and the homelessness crisis. So I did create this business plan for them as part of my work there. And under the leadership at the time, I pitched this idea of looking at new technology and methodology to fast track housing supply. I asked to get the design folks involved, something like prefabricated housing, 3D printing, and tiny homes, which LA doesn't have. And really trying to nail the cost of a unit and trying to really truncate the timeline for delivery within 12 months, which was not happening. It was taking three, four years to get housing through the permitting process and through commissioning. And we were not leveraging the prefabricated modular methodology as much as we could, I felt. And so we did it. We got some seed funding from some banks. We identified a, a site that the agency owned. We brought a lot of the stakeholders in, under the tent very early on. So public works, fire, regional planning, got preliminary approval from the district that the site was in. We put together a panel of uh, jurists and they selected three projects. And one was, of course, 3D printing. And then, of course, with COVID, it kind of uh, took a back seat. And I keep gently nudging the project along, but it took away that whole premise of trying to do something within a year. That's been challenging, unfortunately. But mm. I'm still hopeful that something could be done. So the goals of the project, really, to build it better, faster, more economically. Right. So there is a framework. However, the literature says you can't do all three. You can do faster and better, better and cheaper and, and whatnot. So the new framework was faster, cheaper, smarter using technology. That's the innovation that came into this because the government was regurgitating the same version of the previous, you know, without really trying to fix anything or looking for gaps where things could be made better. So I think that this was different. Let's talk about price. The notion of what's expensive or cheaper is very relative, according to who you speak to, the city that you're in, etc. Who determines what really is affordable? And that affordability is sometimes what government has to pay to build the housing, but perhaps the residents take on the expense of the housing, whether it's a purchase or a rental. How does an agency begin to think about the whole concept of affordability? Yeah, I mean, in this particular space, the question is constantly being asked, for whom? LA has been very expensive for housing. I mean, if you just take San Francisco and the Bay Area out as outliers, LA is probably the most expensive. Even in this current crisis, pricing keeps going up. And this was exactly what I was trying to address because I felt yeah. that the modularity of projects could really bring the price down. And it's not for everybody. Nobody wants to have this sort of block housing as a vernacular, but it does fit within a context in terms of helping people be sheltered when you have a crisis going on on the streets. So... How do we set the price? The market sets the price. It's about materials. It's about labor. 
it's about design fees, right? All of those factors. But I still do believe having the, the background from looking at this through the lens of a major program, that there are things that can be done. One of the things is cutting the time, trying to streamline the permitting process so that you can build faster. Because the minute you prolong things, a lot of stuff can go wrong. I think that's all I can say in terms of prices, that it's just too much. And we have to figure out as a community, as designers and architects, how to cut that time and bring that price down. The project that you were working on, were the residents going to be paying for the housing or was the government paying for the housing or was it short-term housing? No, they were not going to be paying for the housing. There's this housing choice voucher system or section eight as it's referred to within government. So their rent would be covered. Uh, And mind you, this was a pilot project. So we're looking at a nominal amount of units to get the technology and process permitted and then looking to scale the project. So we were looking at maybe four units to start it off and see how the technology works, get it permitted, and then look to scaling. I had this vision to see how people could have a pathway to home ownership because that builds equity and that builds wealth. And that's one of the the main reasons of some systemic oppressive things that have been happening that could narrow that wealth gap and maybe prevent homelessness. So in my analysis for the agency very early on, I looked at how to bring the price down. That was a pilot project. And the second bucket was really preventing people falling into homelessness because we always say we can't build out of it because I think the numbers are like we house 300 people a month, but 500 people, I'm just using those numbers very hypothetically, but it's something like that a third more falling into homelessness. So you're never going to catch up to that curve. You have to look at some of the more systemic issues. Interesting to me that the focus was on Section 8, and I understand that, but it impacts so many people who do not fall into Section 8. I once had a friend that used to say, you can get by in this country if you're very poor or very rich. Right, exactly. It's the middle class. You're absolutely right. And this is why I was looking into that home ownership model where even young people, right, Zen Gs can start. And they, they don't want a lot. They just want a small footprint, you know, the micro unit, but build wealth that way, you know. And then maybe you build equity and then you can buy your one or two bedroom along the way if you start a family or whatever. But just to get people into building wealth was really part of this long view on this project. Right. So many young people don't seem to have that opportunity anymore. Staying with their families. Yes, exactly. The residents as well, there are so many different types of potential residents, right? And in thinking about affordability and how they live together in a complex, how does one design, how does one decide, is it a generic design. You have so many different kinds of populations that you're looking at, even within that Section 8 demographic. Other states have this too, a model of housing called permanent supportive housing, where folks are measured in terms of what they refer to as acuity levels. So you can have a high acuity level or a low acuity level, which is the scale. 
And if you score high, you need more support, more help. So it could be mental health, it could be addictions, and you then are on track to be housed permanently with supportive housing on the premises, whether they are clinicians or case managers or whoever, they get their services in their housing complex. We found that somebody might have an incident, they get the help at a hospital, and then they have nowhere to go. So they end up back on the street, they're not taking their meds, and it's just sort of the cyclicality. So they felt that we needed to create this specific type of housing called permanent supportive housing, PSH, to house people who are on that scale, but at a high acuity level. So that's one model. The temporary shelters are basically a pit stop where you're supposed to then be housed permanently based on your needs. So somebody has a life incident or a domestic violence and they enter a shelter and then they're supposed to then go into temporary housing with the potential for being housed permanently. But there's a shortage of units. We don't have enough units to house everybody. So this was again, going back to my project, how do we build quicker and more affordably to try and get more supply online faster? So you get the shelter, you get the temporary housing and you get the sort of permanent supportive housing and then permanent housing for others. That's four different types of housing that are more generic, that are tailored to individuals. In working on this project, I imagine that you met with various groups. Are there any stories that stand out for you? I was working with a group that belonged to United Way, working with residents called Everyone In, and it's called Stories from the Frontline. So they have these organizations or meetings and forums. It's this caravan that goes from town to town, and this talk to people who have had lived experience and now are housed to come and talk about their stories because we have a lot of NIMBYs in LA. So not in my backyard type projects. A lot of the communities do not want affordable housing in their communities. So this was one way the United Way and I was engaging with them to engage with the residents both who at a community level so that there wouldn't be pushback on the project And I did speak to two community groups to get their buy-in to build a project in their area. And all the research that comes with that in terms of the actual residents, thinking in terms of the human-centric design, thinking of design thinking principles. And the design had to provide outdoor space. It had to provide for community. So even on the 3D printing one, It was a pod of four with this center garden that people could commune with each other. Because one of the biggest things that I feel is missing for folks is that safety net of community when something happens in their lives, that net is not there. So we wanted to build that community in these projects where they could start their own extended families, so to speak. From this experience, one of the things that I'm really interested in is the intangibles of home. It's so difficult to define and so subjective. And there are many, many words for it, as 
designers, we use words like shelter. Mm -hmm. And then shelter feels very different than home. And there may be other words, people that define home in a completely different way who prefer to live on the street. How do we begin to think about these, in your view? In a way, we rely quite a bit on data and information and surveys and financial information and all of that. But then aside from that, there are these intangibles. And I think this idea of this pod that you were just getting at, as you were talking about that, I really felt that. I I saw a small grouping in this communal space in between that if somebody gets sick, you know, the feeling like someone is there always for you. But there are many, many ways to think about those intangibles of home. What have you learned yourself from going through this? How would you define it? Or could you? Yes and no, because it's such an individual thing, isn't it? What that means, home. Definitely home is not shelter and vice versa. I think a home is community, basically. And even if you are a single person, I think one has to have those networks of community, whether it's your friends, your work colleagues, faith-based organizations, other advocacy groups. You have to build that safety net for when you have a life incident happen, whether it's a health issue or a job loss or, or something, right? You have to have communities sort of help you through that tough spot. And if you don't, that's when your resiliency drops and that's when you have the potential to fall into homelessness. So what is a home for me? It's about people more than anything else. And you can say it's about artifact. It's about things that you personalize and you put in your little space to create home. But if you're really thinking about an intangible, then it's that feeling of belonging to somebody, to some thing, to some place. And I find having done all the research that a lot of people don't have that belonging. For example, I, I heard this story that this gentleman used to be downtown and they somehow got him housed. But being LA, that LA is, is so vast that his housing was somewhere really far away. He wouldn't stay there because his buddies were in downtown Los Angeles. Yes. So he gave it up. And that shows how much that belonging means to somebody. The problem is so multifaceted and, and, and so very complex and layered at so many levels. These are some of those intangibles where that sense of belonging to someone, you know, I think is really important. And we definitely need to think about that and include it as you've done. Dear listeners, thank you for being here. I invite you to reflect on what you've heard today and send your thoughts or stories. We would love to hear from you. Stay in touch on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website, thewearing.com. Subscribe free to Wearing wherever you get your podcasts so that you are alerted when the next episode airs. Wearing is a pro bono initiative of Dreamland Creative Projects. 
which provides architectural and interior design services for the places where we live, heal, age, and inspire. If you wish to have a design consultation, visit dreamlandcreativeprojects.com or email me, nina at dreamlandcreativeprojects.com. Until we meet again, goodbye from Waring.